The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets Podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a markets reporter on the Cross Asset Team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. On this show, we'll speak with expert guests from inside Bloomberg and beyond to break down what's moving stocks, bonds, currencies, and commodities, and how each asset class is affecting the others. On the show this week, it's a tale of new highs. The S&P 500 finally took out its previous September record, The U.S. dollar is also at the highest levels of the year, and the oil rally just can't seem to be tamed. The question, Mike, is if all of that can continue. That is the question, of course, and I'm happy to say our two guests will give us the exact answer to that question, right? Is that right? No, I intend to pinpoint where the market is going. (laughs) That voice you hear is Chris Nagy, executive editor at Bloomberg, and he will tell us the exact date and time that the bull market will end. Is that right, Chris? I have that information. (laughs) Yes, but you you have to wait till later in the show. Also joining us, Luke Kawa of the Cross Asset team. Luke has been very busy. You're up in Canada recently, weren't you? I, I was indeed up in the coldest G7 capital. A uh, great, great time in, in Ottawa, in rainy Ottawa, watching the Leafs lose in game seven and having my heart broken again. Oh, okay. We, we'll, we'll avoid that topic from that case. Luke Kawa, what caused this record in stocks this week? It's great when you have a stock market that is actually just a handful of stocks, as, as the name would suggest. But more and more, this rally has become a concentrated phenomenon. And, you know, you could point out that this is a, a source of weakness or a potential vulnerability, just that, you know, a few tech heavyweights are essentially doing the heavy lifting and powering it higher. But then you have Facebook and Microsoft, two of those tech heavyweights, just, you know, absolutely kill it on earnings and do exactly what people expect them to do with stocks in terms of Facebook top line growth and, you know, not getting their business model upended by regulators and instead just saying, you know, three billion, five billion cost of doing business. And then Microsoft, the cloud, just showing that that business is a structural growth business and not uh, kind of having the decline people might have thought in the fourth quarter. So, so really, it's just a story of, you know, just the heavyweights are the heavyweights. They've really taken over and they've given us less reason to doubt them. So to dial it back a bit, it was back on Tuesday when the S&P finally hit those highs. It was 293075. That was the magic number. And Chris, of course, there are always bull and bear cases to be made. Mm-hmm. But why don't you walk us through what are the reasons that bulls are coming out now and saying why this can keep going? Yeah, I mean, the obvious the most obvious answer to that is that the Fed remains incredibly uh friendly to the market. It's not going to do anything this year. It got like everyone else traumatized at the end of at the end of 2018. And it's basically vowed to sit there as stocks continue to go up 10% a month or something, or that seems to be basically their posture. The other bull case is, I mean, you can, you can ascribe it to a handful of tech 
heavyweights, fine. But I'd also point out that those heavyweights are basically 30% of the NASDAQ 100. They're a good portion of the S&P 500. There's still a kind, you know, the same thing that's driven the, the bull market for 10 years, the fact that there is an enormous amount of efficient earnings production going on in the U.S. economy, at least in the mega cap uh, publicly traded space, that it's just, it drowns out everything else. The margins remain incredibly fat, return on whatever equity invested capital remains strong. And it's just a hard train to get in the way of. And then on the micro level, like you had the everyone was worried about earnings recession, earnings estimates coming in. We've seen in the past week as more and more of the big ones report earnings that we've actually seen full year estimates start to firm a little bit. And the second quarter estimates haven't been slashed anywhere near to the same degree as the first quarter. So that whole earnings recession thing all looks to be going the way of the woolly mammoth. But yet, if you look at some of the earnings out this week, I'm thinking of UPS and 3M. I mean, these are sort of your old cliche macro indicators. You know, UPS is the the biggest one of the biggest shipping companies in the world. 3M is the maker of fifty thousand things. Wow. Is, I think what we used to say in, yeah. in the Bloomberg stories. Is it safe to ignore these? I mean, are people just assuming these are idiosyncratic stories, uh, company-specific s- stories, and not really the, the macro indicators that maybe we we once thought they were? Um, I think, the, to some degree, the sob stories we've always had around the market for the entire 10 years. Uh, we've also had bad eco-growth for much of the, or not, not bad, but middling eco-growth for most of the the bull market and people have been able to live with it. So I agree. Those are a little concerning. It's hard entirely to write stuff like that off as idiosyncratic, given the pervasiveness of their reach, those two companies. And certainly, you know, something was being signaled at the end of last year, regardless of the fact that it got put away so quickly. I mean, that's what happens when the Fed utterly pivots on itself. But um, for the moment, I think you do have to kind of give the benefit of the doubt to the idea that this is not uncharacteristic of how it's always looked. There's always been uh, a scattered blowups going on. And, and then you kind of have, you know, this scenario where along our, our last kind of like higher march to all time highs, you had healthcare really selling off and cyclicals absolutely going haywire. So you had in the cyclicals defensive index, you had essentially a huge parabolic move. And now what we have is, you know, just a rotation, a reversal of that. And it's just another iteration of these protective rotations that have protected the market because, you know, nothing goes down all at once except for, you know, your February 2018 and your Q4 2018. I want to come back to talk of profits recession just for a bit because I know about 80% of companies are beating on earnings this quarter, but still it seems like a lot of people are talking about that hockey stick fourth quarter, about a 9% gain. Does it seem like that is potentially more reasonable to achieve now to bring this year into full growth? I, I've i never seen it as quite as odd as, as others. It seems to me just to be more a function of math. There's sequential growth expected quarter by quarter by quarter, and there's no real acceleration in the sequential quarter by quarter by quarter uh, growth that's expected for 2019. So this is just more a function to me of base effects. Uh, where, where it gets weird is I, I don't understand how the margin story gets so much better in Q4, and, and that's one thing that... like. This will not become clear to me after the first quarter results or the second quarter results or the third quarter results. That'll be something I I need to essentially see to believe or have a lot more visibility because I just can't unpack and understand it. And yet, so here we are off to this amazing start to the year in stocks. But the latest figures I've seen still indicate that uh, money is flowing out of stock 
funds. Um, and I don't think hedge funds have really embraced this rally, you know, based on some of the indicators we would use to to uh, sort of suss that out. Is this all buybacks? I mean, is is buybacks the main catalyst and any sort of threat to buybacks, the main risk to, to the equity? Well, market? first of all, it's hard to imagine a threat to buybacks. Uh, uh, I just read a story that Buffett may announce some extremely high number of buybacks next year. It's not that typical that those actually go away until a recession happens. So if the if a recession happens, it would be to some degree the least of anyone's problems. I I don't necessarily fall into the camp that buybacks are really that big of a source of fuel for the for the rally. I do what you're saying is absolutely right. This is a totally unloved and flowless is the word now recovery. But to a large extent, that's part of the bull case, I would say. I mean, stocks can go up. Stocks went up 2009, 2011 with virtually zero flows or or the opposite most, for most of the period. It really isn't necessarily the, the sole driver of the market, this idea that money has to be being thrown at it. What has to be happening is people are driving harder bargains for to, to sell. And... Uh, or people just the people who are buying are more eager. And right now, there's a lot of people walking around who would say the fact that hedge funds haven't participated, the fact that ETF flows have been relatively anemic relative to p- past peaks, like vastly less than uh, September and January, is something that's yet to go right in this market. And the really big bull cases, the sort of melt-up cases for 2019 are premised on those facts. Uh, coming at a slightly different perspective from, from the buyback story, because I, I just think they're so fundamentally important to preventing downside more than they are to spurring upside. Just the idea that, you know, a lot of these are pre-programmed and kind of out of the hands of discretionary, but the discretionary ones, essentially, like, what what do we know about the structure of the market? What do we learn in Q4? Q4, we learned that liquidity is terrible in, in single stocks. That's why the kind of long, short tech deleveraging went absolutely awry. We learned that futures market depth doesn't really exist. So where is the cash bid for equities? That that to me means that buybacks are the supporting factor in markets that do prevent us from having these kind of volatility spirals. So I, I don't think they're like, I think we'd maybe end up in the same place, but the sharp ratios would be, you know, a heck of a lot worse without buybacks. Can I just say one thing about buybacks? There was this, uh, a note a couple of weeks ago that got a, a huge amount of attention with Goldman thing saying that, you know, net of issuance, you get about $400 billion worth of buybacks in the U.S. market this year, and it dwarfs all other net money that comes into the market. At the same time, if you look at Bloomberg data, something like $90 trillion worth of stock trades every year in the U.S., U.S. sort of tagged stock market. So $400 billion of net cash at the margin certainly a lot of money, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to the amount of stock that goes back and forth every day. It's basically one day's value traded. Um, it matters, certainly, and it's net, purely net. It's easy to measure, but it doesn't entirely take into account the gross buying and selling that goes on in the market every day. Basically, people bringing their their paychecks to the market and people cashing them out. There's obviously $90 trillion worth of selling every year as well. Um, so framed like that, it's not quite as obvious to me how how it single-handedly juices the market. So we're still likely to see buybacks in the near term. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's still a lot of money on the sidelines that it seems like could come in to propel this higher. But what about the valuation case? Because the argument can be made that 
tech stocks in particular may be looking expensive, but you also have the handful of people, many people out there pointing to interest rates and saying, well, they're low. And if you're saying that stocks are expensive, you're missing the whole point. Yeah. So I've been talking about this for about 10 days, which means I've I've been wrong for 10 days. And just looking at things like, you know, the NASDAQ 100's forward P premium to the S&P 500, that's essentially taken out its 2018 peak ratio of NASDAQ to S&P 500. Again, taken out that 2018 peak, high at sense bubble and then outright and the outright thing is where I, I really start to focus in on because when the forward PE of the NASDAQ gets to 22 that's when things have tended to break uh, so either you have to have the forward PE in terms of the earnings estimates really going up nicely right now or you should maybe see you know the price do a little bit of work maybe go a little sideways because we are not too far off from that level now but again like I think Credit Suisse recently, or or Sockgen, one of the, one of those banks, uh, made the one case made the case that you know <laughs> in the melt up scenarios in which we are envisaging, you know, these kind of valuation things, especially with the high growth names, go completely out the window, and it's a complete joke to even cast any uh, faith in them. Nineteen ninety nine. This this reminds me of a good story you had out, Sarah. I love the headline. All the stuff bears are saying to spoil the S&P 500 record party. Chris over here is laughing because the headline uh, was a baby of his. So. Oh, yes. <laughs> Something to blame. I, I, could, I, could, I could have predicted that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, why is it that we can't enjoy a record without, without seeing what these pesky bears have to say? Well, is it sure. just risk management? or, or... Sarah wrote the story. <laughs> well, when it comes to the bear argument, there are a lot of bears out there. And part of the argument is, is just that, okay, yes, we're back to those record highs, but we can't sustain a 17% rally that we've seen this year at the pace that we have seen it. They also point to fourth quarter earnings, but the issue is first quarter earnings has been a lot better than expected. And now it seems like that is falling off the back end. And then the valuation case, there are the bears out there that will look at the market and tell you that it does look expensive to them. And at this point in time, they'd rather be taking profits than throwing their money at this market. But, but look, one thing I'm so happy about with, with this all-time high and the one that we previously had in September, like, what was going on in September that screamed all-time high? Like, where were, where was the kind of euphoria? Where was the dancing in the streets? Mm-hmm. Don't see it now either. The only time I've seen anything this cycle that resembled what I am told an all-time high should look like is January, January. 2018. I, I want another one of those blow-off tops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was great fun. (laughs) (laughs) The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Sarah, I'm curious if any of these bears were talking about two things that are sort of on my mind. One is the, the strong rally in the dollar that we've seen. And also this sort of creep higher in oil prices, uh, you know, West Texas intermediate oils in the neighborhood of what, 66, $67 right a there. barrel. Is it, will we get to the point where we have to worry about oil prices again? Or, you know, is 
this economy so leveraged to oil production that it's it's the higher the better. So starting with oil, I would say the majority of investors I've spoken, particularly in this last week, they're not so worried about higher oil prices because now you look at the U.S. and we are a net exporter of oil and they say this could actually benefit the U.S. economy in a way because of the businesses. On the dollar component, I will say I was speaking with someone this past week who said the dollar is now getting to levels that we are getting concerned about, especially for some of these more multinational companies that do a lot of their business overseas because this could harm them. You have a stronger dollar overseas that could potentially mean lower sales are not as competitive. Yeah, 3M. And, and you ha- but you haven't really seen that, like 3M aside, darn that happened, but uh, you haven't really seen that generally Priced into equities, like look at the look at the pocket of U.S. that we've been talking about is underperforming the most recently. You know the Russell persistently it should be a you know domestic focus, a bigger beneficiary of the strong dollar. Quickly on the oil point, it's been interesting just from a mathematical standpoint. The positive correlation between changes in oil and changes in the S and P five hundred, pretty darn high. So that's actually it's actually been like positively correlated, good contributor to the rally. But again, on the dollar side, the the fun thing is that it does seem to be hurting the rest of the world. If you look at, you know, MSCI All World XUS and then, you know, run correlations with the Bloomberg Dollar Spot Index, you'll actually see that the dollar strength is weighing on the rest of the world equities. And you know, a large part of that is just the straight currency translation effect that it's having. You know, those are priced in local. And then once you convert into U.S., you know, you, you're fighting against uh, the tide there. But that's what I think is the interesting point, because we know generally a strong dollar is is not good for the world. It tightens credit conditions globally. So I can understand why oil prices are rising. It's really centered around supply. This week was really peaked after the Trump administration came out and said that they were going to end the waivers as it relates to exports from Iran. But when it comes to the dollar, I'm having a bit harder of a time understanding just the momentum that we continue to see. I mean, is this just another 2018 redux where everyone thought we would see a weaker dollar, but maybe that's not the case? Exactly and almost for the same reason. I think that uh, if you look at the strength in the equity market, like TD's economists uh, and TD's strategist, uh, Mark McCormick, he's been on this for a while saying, essentially, if you think the U.S. equity market is going to outperform, if you think you know rate spreads around the world are going to be fairly stable, then uh, portfolio inflows into U.S. equities should be a driver of the dollar. And I think it's, it's a story that fits for now. So I like it. <laughs> I like it, too, then. Mm-hmm. Chris, are you worried about the dollar? No, no. Uh, uh, yeah, you 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 see things like the the three M blow up this week. You remember that it can it can do damage to the big profit edifice, but and and like Luke was saying, it's uh, the main sort of temperature taker on financial conditions. So yeah, along with everything else, it's uh, a kind of a secondary concern, I'd say. What about the relationship between oil and energy stocks, though? Because you look at crude up about 45 percent this year, energy up 20 percent. Can this kind of just add to that bull case in a way? Right, because energy hasn't been a huge participant. I mean, energy is up a lot, energy stocks. But yeah, right. There's an argument that it hasn't caught up with, with oil yet. Um, and, uh, you know, another one of these basically arguments that some good thing is left to happen in the market and that that's going to be energy stocks. At 20%, 25% rally is kind of difficult to get to be that disappointed. Can't in. be I'm, mad there. Right, yeah. like, look, at what happened recently? What was the deal? It was uh, Sonovus buying Anadarko. If you look Chevron. at Chevron, Chevron buying Anadarko. So if you look at that, you know, look at XLE. So your more integrated players and how they've done versus how XOP, the producers, explorers have done. 
look at that, track the oil price, see the gap and, you know, the transaction it completely and immediately makes sense. So I wonder if, you know, the market will start to say, hey, you know, we're going to be Chevron. We're going to buy the producers. And I will say there is an ETF that tracks oil services companies and that ETF is up more than 30 well, percent. So you, you do see a difference when you dial in and really look on these companies. Yeah, nat- that benefit. Natural gas is not having a great year. right? No. So Exxon, I'm sure, is a gigantic natural gas producer. Uh, Luke, you keep a pretty close eye on volatility markets, and now with this rally to all-time highs, we see the VIX, the CBOE volatility index at, what, about 12 and a half, 12 and change. But moving higher. But moving higher, trending higher. But moving higher. I, I think that's been the, the most interesting development that's taken place with the, the VIX as we've kind of made this march to all-time highs. You'll remember that in January 2018, uh, stocks up, vols up was a persistent common theme, and everyone was trying to make excuses for it and talk around it. And then volatility exploded. And uh, you know, we realized that maybe that was a warning sign. Last time we had stocks up, vols up was June. And we got, you know, like a 3% sell off in the immediate aftermath. But this kind of, this is something I'm watching as, you know, it's a sign that people are starting to either hedge this or wildly chase upside. And from what I can tell, looking at the implied volatilities of, you know, out of the money options on the S&P 500, it, it seems more that the downside being sought is the factor here. So folk, folks are starting to get worried about this as we, you know, as we hit all time highs during earnings season, but still have a supportive, but definitely not stellar macro backdrop. You know, you know another year vols up, stocks up was 1999 when the VIX- The uh, whole year. Right. I think people would take that. They'd be willing to live with a 15 or 20 VIX if they could get the NDX to double again. But we're not at that point in, in 2018 where there was so much complacency. People were selling the VIX, shorting the VIX, basically to you know pick up those nickels in front of the steamroller. I, do you get the sense that we're not do for a repeat of that? Has the lesson been learned? Well, I, I think just like a the, the products are gone, so we can't we can't so that that can't happen that can't happen again. We can't have we can't have a repeat. We we will not have a repeat. That just that source of fire currently does not exist. But other other factors are essentially positioning. We've all talked about flowless rally. That's something that augurs against a repeat. And also just you know levels of realized are a little lower now than they were in January, and levels of implied are a little higher. Like, the opposite dynamic. The volatility risk premium is a lot higher now. You can make a lot, you can assume you will make a lot more money if you're selling vol now as opposed to when you were selling vol. That was really the, that was a penny. That was not a dime in front of the steamroller. Mm. (laughs) One man's penny is another man's dime. And Canadian dollars. Canadian Canadian dollars. (laughs) Which brings us to, you know what time it is? Craziest thing Mike ever saw in markets this week. This is a segment that we will be doing most every week. And Mike's going to come to us and he's going to ask us what the craziest thing we saw. And we have to come up with something better than his. Yes. You're up first, Chris. Uh, so I liked uh, the price action uh, Wednesday morning uh, before anyone was at their desks in PG&E, which was when it uh, rose 24% and then retraced the whole thing in five minutes after some industry Journal reported that uh, uh, Warren Buffett was going to buy them, and then he immediately told Becky Quick on CNBC that they that he that he wasn't. So I did the I did a little TSM on it, and twelve and a half million dollars worth of stock traded in that window, wow. and something like five hundred thousand shares. So lots that's of winners good. and losers. Chris did his homework. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah, that's, that's yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not feeling too. Good. I, I was away from the desk for two days this week, <laughs> so I'm I'm going to give myself a pass. But uh, one thing I I saw, and it happened. On Thursday, on Thursday morning, right out of the gate, company I'd never heard of is it Zayo. Zayo. So they were tumbling 
10% out of the gate. No one could really figure out why. And it turns out that apparently people were, you know, they were thinking they were going to get acquired relatively soon. But the company had set up meetings at a conference in a couple months. And then investors assumed, hey, I, I guess that means they're not going to sell themselves by then. And you know, people freaked out and the stock was down 10%. Assumption at its best. <laughs> but that logic governs. Well, I mean, people, that those 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 conference he's meetings are, are He's trying huge. to pretend this wasn't crazy. No. <laughs> he's trying to talk this down what already. I'm, what I'm worried is that Chris we- Chris wants to win. Uh, all out. My, all my out. team probably, probably reported the thing about the conference. Anyway. Sarah, what craziness have you witnessed this week? I'm going to go with Tesla and not because its stock is down around the lowest level since 2017, but because just ahead of their earnings the day before this week, Elon Musk came out on stage at a conference and said that they are going to have completely autonomous robo taxis potentially on the road within a year. That was pretty crazy. All right. I got a couple crazy things. First one, all this hype about Gen Z. It makes me nervous for one reason. Why is that? Generation Z. That's the last letter, Chris. Oh, right. Good point. You've seen an what Excel table. You've the seen next, an Excel table. We what? have double no. A. The, have, next, oh. the next generation is Generation Alpha. Okay. Oh, I can oh, tell you that. God help us all. Oh. <laughs> okay. And all this mystery about, oh, their spending habits. I'll tell you where their spending habits come from. I'm, I'm the father of three Gen Z kids. Mm-hmm. They're getting it for me. Oh, right. It's yes. all me. Yeah, well. Yeah. But no, that, the you're, the the sor- you're, you're the source, source. of funds. Yeah. Yeah. That's, source that's, of not, that's not spending <laughs> habits. What's a, what's a good allowance these days? Uh, it depends how much they keep the room clean uh-huh. and all that. And, uh, but what's the yeah, dollar yeah. figure? I give it 20 a week or so. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's high. That's not pretty, pretty But they, they, they milk a lot more uh, off you than that, mm-hmm. believe me. Mm-hmm. All right, craziest thing I've ever seen. And I'll, I'll confess this is not directly related to markets, but it's pretty close. I love the SEC settlements with some hedge fund manager who who gets in trouble. And we always do a great job of saying, okay, he stole X million from clients. But the question always is, well, what did he spend it on? Mm-hmm. So this guy in Massachusetts got in trouble Uh-oh. for ripping off his clients and buying Taylor Swift tickets with it. Luke, I feel like that's, that's a strategy. That is, that that's is a strategy amazing, you could get, oh, get oh, behind. That's that's he didn't buy Taylor Swift tickets. He invested. Right. <laughs> a, that is an appreciating asset. It's not a bad trade if you get them at book value and uh, face value and sell them before the the show. Luke Pretty, might be the ahead. largest Taylor Swift fan out and, there, and it is amazing because you know right now, essentially, as as we're going live, this is this is four twenty six. This is the big day. Oh wow. You, I, I'm sure. I'm sure everyone else has been following Taylor Swift's can't countdown on her Instagram to 4:26. We don't know what's coming. We we know it's big. Hopefully, wow. it's not an engagement, but maybe a new music video or something like that. Hopefully, sir. I think that's got to be all the time we have. We have to leave it there. But uh, Luke Kawa, Taylor Swift enthusiast, and Chris Nagy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks. My pleasure. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, and app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. Our guest Chris Nagy is at Chris Nagy1. And Luke Kawa is at LJ Kawa. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.